Well, if you would, please turn with me in your copy of the Word of God to the book of Philippians, Paul's letter to the church at Philippi and chapter 2. And this morning in our text, we'll be thinking together about the gospel's stultifying power to destroy selfishness. And I want you to ask with yourself, ask yourself before God as we read this text and hear it expounded, has the gospel made you a less selfish person? We're all selfish by nature. Has the gospel made you a less selfish person? Has it done for you what it's done, what it did in the lives of Timothy and Epaphroditus, these men who were transformed from inherently selfish creatures, as we all are by nature, to become genuinely concerned for the needs of others, to be uh, concerned for the cause of Christ in the souls of men, such that they were willing to sacrifice even their own lives for the good of the church as they sought to serve God in their midst. And so, let's um, hear the Word of God as we read the example of these remarkable men. Please listen carefully. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you, for I have no one like him who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare, for they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how, as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill near to death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Amen. The grass withers, the flower falls off, but the Word of God endures forever. Would you describe yourself as a selfish person? Most Americans think their neighbor is. Uh, over the last, it's true, over the last 10 years, there have been a number of polls. One of them um, said that 71% of Americans think the typical American is inherently selfish. Typical American. 71%. Interestingly, only 17% of those polled thought they themselves were selfish. 71 and 17, back to front. And those numbers tell you that selfishness is like the back of your head. You're much better at seeing it in other people than you are in seeing your own, right? 
selfishness. Are you a selfish person? Um, I think we're, we, we would all agree, though, that there is some truth to the pool, that our, our culture, our nation is becoming more and more selfish and less and less content. Speaking of the English, here perhaps even more selfish, um, Cardinal Cormac Murphy O'Connor, who's the leader of the Catholic Church in England, said, I see a quite demoralized society, one where the only good is what I want, the only rights are my own, and the only life with any meaning or value is the life I want for myself. It seems as we focus upon ourselves and self-confidence, self-fulfillment, and so forth, self-satisfaction, that the more we focus upon ourselves and our own happiness, the less and less happiness we actually end up enjoying. Funny, that is, isn't it? And so, this morning, I want, to, I want, us, I want us to search ourselves and to try to discover um, our own selfishness and the path out of selfishness. Now, Paul, um, this whole chapter has been dealing with the subject of selfishness in one way or another, because it's a major problem in Philippi, right? Whether it be the preacher boys who are delighted that Paul is in prison so they can kind of muscle in on his act, take over his pulpit, and get some of the limelight for themselves. They're like selfie preachers. You like having themselves in the frame constantly, right? And interestingly, we, we, we call our age the age of the selfie, and there's even a new medical, medical condition that goes along with it. It's called selfie wrist. All this constant flexion of the wrist is causing a, a spike of carpal tunnel syndrome because the median nerve, as it goes in under the, the flexor retinaculum and the wrist, is inflamed by all this flexing, um, and it's not good for you. You need to find a safer way to take selfies, <laughs> uh, but it'll not fix your heart. Uh, these preachers want to be in the frame all the time. They want to, be in the, they want, they want to occupy center stage in all their sermons, um, and you see it too in chapter 2 is Paul exhorts the church to stop grumbling and complaining. He says that because evidently grumbling and complaining is a problem in the church. And a grumbling heart, a complaining heart is the simmering, discontented perspective of a selfish person. I haven't got what I need, what I deserve. I'm going to tell everybody about it, right? Um, in chapter 3, he speaks about those whose God is their belly. They know no master higher than their own lust for food or sex or whatever, right? Uh, and then chapter 4, you have Yudia and Syntyche, these two women who are locked in kind of internecine uh, conflict in the church over dear knows what, right? But it's selfish. It's self-centered. That lack of contentment that the, that the selfless soul knows and discovers. And every word, chapter 2, is designed to combat selfishness. The example of Christ, the only somebody who ever was, who became a nobody. We'll talk about that more in a, in a little bit in the sermon, but He becomes a nobody, dying under the wrath and curse of God, giving His, his whole soul for the work of our redemption. It's the most selfless act 
human history ever has seen or ever will see. And Paul sets him forth as the antidote to ourselves, the, 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 the treatment, the best treatment, the only effective treatment to navel-gazing, which is our normal perspective as human beings, is to look away from our own navel and to look up and to see Christ. Nothing will kill your selfishness more, my selfishness more, than looking to Christ. If He will serve me by becoming sin in hell upon the cross, what should I, what could I, what, what should I not be willing to do serving Him? If God will lay His life down serving me, surely I will lay down my life serving Him. Now, service and serve, serving and servant heartedness, kind of an unpleasant word, uncomfortable, because like service kind of sounds like a job that nobody wants, right? Um, but when you're talking about service and selflessness, we're really talking about love, right? Looking away from yourself, your own needs, your own desires, and looking to serve others and their needs and their concerns, help them carry their burdens, and so forth and so on. So, as we look at this passage today and the example of Timothy and Epaphroditus, and Paul is bringing them to the fore to show what happens to a person who's been transformed by Jesus. Christ served them, now they serve Him. Christ laid down His life for them, now Epaphroditus lays his life down, almost dying, being willing to die, serving the needs of the church. That's the connection why Paul um, brings them before us. And we'll see when it comes to Christian love, Christian service, Christian selflessness, there are always three dimensions at play. There's a horizontal dimension of genuine concern for other people down here. There's a vertical dimension as we serve Christ serving them, right? And then there's an eternal dimension as we're willing to lay down our lives in time for the glory of eternity. It's it's the logic of Jim Elliot. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. You have to choose, are you going to sacrifice eternity for time? Are you going to sacrifice time for eternity? And the problem is, right now, you can feel the one and see the one. Time feels so real. It seems so lasting. We can be stupid enough to sacrifice eternity because it seems so far off and so intangible and so beyond the pleasures and delights of this present world. Let's work together then through uh, how, in a sense, the gospel transforms our selfishness by giving us a horizontal, vertical, and eternal perspective. So, first of all, then, let's look at the horizontal um, perspective of true concern for other people. And you see that in Timothy, verse 19. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered by news of you. Why does Paul choose Timothy? Verse 20, 
For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests. Let's stop there. I have no one like him. Ulterior motives abound. Timothy alone stands forth as a man who is genuinely concerned for the needs of these Christians in um, Philippi. That's an amazing thing. Of all the men Paul's discipling and raising up, all of the ministers he knows in Rome, all of the Christians he knows in Rome, Timothy alone is marked by genuine concern for other people. Everybody else, it seems, is pursuing their own agenda, working their own angle, um, gaining their own political capital, engaging in kind of some form of quid pro quo behavior where I'll help you, I'll serve you, I'll pretend to be concerned for you, but I'm really being concerned because I'm, I'm after something else, something you can give me, or some praise status I will get by serving you, like the, like the medical student who would be very quick to pick up trash uh, or to open the door for the, uh, the cleaning lady when the professor of medicine was doing his rounds. He wasn't really opening the door for the cleaning lady. He was opening the door for himself, hoping the professor of medicine would see him do that and then think, oh, he's a nice young medical student, and maybe then get a position on his team when he graduated. Or like um, the, um, I've lost a quote here, but there's a, the, the famous celebrity who, was, who gave a huge gift um, to a charity, and when he's asked why, he said, well, you know, I can finally go to bed and, and put my head down and feel good about myself. I can look at myself in the morning and think, you're a good person. You're not keeping all this money for yourself. You're sharing it, right? But he's you know, the reason he's giving all this money, or too much of the reason, at least anyway, is because he feels guilty. He's not really… Is he really motivated by the needs of the poor, or is he motivated by the fact he feels bad having so much wealth and advantage and so forth and so on? And Timothy alone, Paul says, has genuine concern for the church. Do you have genuine concern for the people in this church? Do you look at people here and are you concerned for them? When you serve them, are you serving them? Or are you using them and their need as an opportunity to serve yourself? And we have to be honest here, all of us here, you have to be honest that selfishness and a selfish agenda stands always at the door. We all find it much easier to serve other people when there's some tangible good. They can give us something in return, or we can gain some benefit from serving them. It's much, much harder to drag our sorry tails out of bed and serve people when nobody will see, nobody will reward us, and nobody will be impressed by our acts of service, except, of course, the unseen eyes of God. 
Are you genuinely concerned with the needs of others? And of course, the problem you and I have is the problem of sin. And what is sin? And it's been described by others as that three-letter word that puts I in the middle. Me, myself, and I, my agenda, my desires. And whenever sin gets the, um, the upper hand in my heart, I tend to view other people as obstacles in the way of my agenda or as rungs on the ladder that I can use to climb up where I want to go. That ever happened to you? And that happens to us much more than we like to realize. Think about your wife and your children. Why do you squabble with your wife or squabble with your husband? It's because in that moment of madness, you've lost genuine concern for them, and you're only concerned about yourself. Listen to, to Timothy Lane and David Tripp, Paul David Tripp in their little, wonderful little book, Relationships, a Mess Worth Making. He says, why do we get angry? Why are we impatient? Why do we fail to be kind and gentle? Why do we hold a grudge or act out of vengeance? Why do we refuse to cooperate? Why do we say things to one another that should never be said? Why do we walk away in disgust or rule our eyes in disdain? Why would we lie to someone or seek to manipulate them? Why are we competitive and envious? Why do we struggle to rejoice at another's blessing? We do all of these things for one reason. We want our own way in the way we have chosen and at the time we have deemed best. We love us, and we have a wonderful plan for our lives. We have a dream, and the problem is that dream is not the Lord's. And if you're honest, that happens to us with appalling frequency. Even this week, you know, my wife put a challenge before me. She gave me this bit of paper, and at the top of it, I forget the words, like say capitulate at the top, whatever the words, you know, C-A-P, whatever. And then you had, to, you had like three minutes to get as many words from that as you possibly could, right? So I started doing it. Now, Ben and her done it earlier in the day, and she wanted to see if I, and then she began telling me about her day, but I'm trying to, I'm trying to, I'm trying to, I'm trying to beat their score, right? And I'm going, no, be quiet. I'm trying to, you know, and I was quite impatient with her, and it, it just sort of struck me that, you know, just totally selfish. At that moment, it's silly and everything, but self rose up because I wanted to get the most words because I'm a wordsmith after all, right? But how often does that happen in our lives? We view people as obstacles in our way. I was struck by that going from a mum's funeral. So after the funeral mass, we went down to the Culloden Hotel for a reception. And Norma, Catherine's mother, was with me, and we're driving down the Bangor Road. It's pitch black. It's a wet, horrible Irish night, freezing cold. Um, it's a four-lane, busy road, not that well lit. 
There's, there's lots of… It's very busy. There's bright lights coming in Norma's eyes. And Norma's 75 and very sprightly, but she doesn't really like driving at nighttime anymore. You kind of, your confidence levels begin to go down, right? And she's driving. There's lights in her eyes. She, she doesn't know that part of Northern Ireland very well, hasn't been there for a long time, trying to figure out what lane should I be in to get to the Culloden Hotel. And um, I'm trying to help her, trying to remember myself, and we're trying to figure out. And the guy behind us in the car is going, honk, honk, standing, you know, because we, you know, we, were, we, we were delaying his journey by like five and a half seconds by being a little less certain on the highway than he would like. And it suddenly struck me, you know, in all of our, because we all find ourselves getting impatient on the road. But I thought to myself, you know, he has no idea I'm coming back from the church having just buried my mother, and we're both kind of a bit beside ourselves, and he's no idea what's going on in our car. All he can think about is, I've got to get somewhere quickly. And in that moment, he had lost all thought of our needs and who we were, and was thinking only of himself. And that happens to you and me a thousand times every day in the cut and thrust of life with a a difficult husband, a difficult wife, difficult children, difficult parents, difficult teachers, difficult colleagues, difficult moments. As the focus is drawn away from others to ourselves, our own agenda, our own desires, our own hopes, our own, our own fears, our own insecurities. And Paul lifts up Timothy as one who's genuinely concerned for the needs of others. That's the horizontal component. Then there's the vertical component. For I have no one like him who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare, for they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. That's interesting. He doesn't say, for they all seek their own interests, not those of others, but not those of Jesus Christ. That's insightful. Because the problem you and I have, like, we often think of being selfless or selfish as a battle of getting out of ourselves and into other people, right? I've got to push down myself, rising up, and I've got to less of me, more of you, right? And that's, that's a half-truth, but it's never the whole truth. Because how, do how do you escape the gravitational pull of your own selfish soul? understand gravity, right? Gravity is this kind of mysterious force, and we don't understand exactly how it works, but we know it's connected to the mass of something. Everything with mass attracts everything else with mass, right? So, this communion jug over here has mass, right? And as I'm walking away, it's pulling me back, right? But I'm not kind of going back towards it because I've been doing a good job of building my Christmas belly, haven't lost it yet, and I have more mass than it does, right? It doesn't fly to me because the earth has even more mass than I do, and so this massive planet we live on is pulling us both down, and why we don't float off into outer space. Gravitational pull. And the problem you and I have in our relationships is that the gravitational pull of self is almost overpowering. In fact, it's always overpowering unless we can find a bigger center of gravity to pull us out of ourselves. 
And you will never find that in somebody else. Maybe you're a young person here, and you've, you've fallen in love with the most beautiful girl in the world, the most handsome boy, and you think, oh, I love them. I would give my life for them, and so forth and so on. But that's only because they're beautiful. That's only because they add so much to your life. You enjoy being with them. They're witty. They're funny. They're sexy, whatever it is. And you enjoy having them in your life. That's what everybody feels about everyone they marry. But so many marriages end in divorce because when those feelings go, the love is gone. And those feelings are just a classy way of saying, self, I love you because you make me feel so good, which is selfish. We can't escape it. It's, 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 it's the constant companion who stands always at the door like some old-fashioned butler in a, in a, in a uh, old mansion, right? Always there, standing at the corner. Selfishness. And we need a, something with more mass or more glory to pull us out of ourselves, And the only person big enough and good enough to do that is the Lord Jesus Christ, which is why Paul spent so much time speaking about Christ at the beginning of this chapter. He's in the form of God. He's all of the divine prerogatives. He's worthy of receiving the worship only God should receive, all of the praise, all of the honor. If there's one person in all the universe who has the right to say, it's all about me. Look at me. It's Jesus Christ. It's the Father's will that He be the center of the universe. He is the most significant being who's ever lived, and yet He emptied Himself and became a mammal. And then he became a servant. And then he became sin. When I was flying across on the jet, there was a, lots of movies to watch. One of them was a gangster movie, so I was watching this. I watched the beginning of it, turned it off because it wasn't so wholesome. But in, at the start of the movie, there was a party, and this gangster had been... Um, I think, released from prison, and he's kind of, there's this party at this, his mansion, and everyone, all people are there. And uh, not everyone there, surprisingly, knew who he was. There was always people going to big parties, don't, don't really know the guest, and, um, or know his name, but don't know his face. I think he'd been in prison for a while, maybe, I can't remember. Anyway, but he's there, and this, one of the guests is there, and um, he's drinking his whiskey, and he leaves it on the piano, or, or on the, the dining room table. And Denville Washington walks across and picks up the whiskey glass and puts a coaster under it because it's his piano, <laughs> puts it down. And, um, and uh, the guest looks at him and goes, oh, thank you. When you're at it, would you get me some more uh, ice for the glass? He didn't know who he was talking to. He treated him like a servant, and Denville wasn't that, wasn't that happy about it. But it's interesting because when people treat you, it's one thing acting like a servant, but when people treat you like a servant, that's when you discover how much of a servant heart you really have. Well, on the cross, Jesus came to the end of a road, a long road, the Via Dolorosa, and at the end of that road, His Father no longer 
treated him as son. He only treated him as sin. Jesus, the one before whom the angels hide their face, Jesus, who is of holy arise and to behold sin, becomes sin in the presence of the Father. Think about that. You know how painful it is if, you know, and some of you grew up maybe, and your father was very critical. You could never please him. And he would be constantly pointing out how you had failed. And the pain of that haunts you to this day. Maybe it was a mother who was relentless in her criticism. But those are, those are only a few things. Even the most critical father only points out a few flaws. Jesus on the cross to save you, his soul became the repository for God knows how many billions of lifetimes worth of sin. And all God saw when he looked at his son was reason for condemnation, reason for blame, reason to curse him. Every Sunday, I stand at the end of the service, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord cause His face to shine upon you. On the cross, the Father said, the Lord curse you. The Lord hide His face from you and drive you from among the land of the living and wipe you as one wipes a plate. The Lord wipe you out forever. And in that, those hours of darkness upon the cross, Christ experienced eternal separation from God in those hours on the cross. Because He's God the Son, He can experience eternal separation, the weight of it, the, the, the fullness of it in a moment of time. And Jesus did that to serve you, God the Son, because He loved you. And when you see that, it does something to a soul. It pulls you out of yourself. And your life is now more and more about not me, Lord, not less of me and more of others, but less of me and more of Jesus. What interests Christ now interests me, Timothy says. And so that's incredible because that's the answer to our selfishness. And it's also the content of selflessness. It's no longer, and this is, this is where it's particularly convicting, it's no longer just about me helping you live your best life now. But it's me helping you become the person Christ wants you to become. It's, it's me helping give birth to Christ and His kingdom in your life. Right? And that's very, very convicting. It's like Ephesians, right? 5.25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her. And we often stop there, as if that means taking the trash out or giving her a shoulder rub in the evenings, and it does mean those things. But it also means, verse 26, Christ gave Himself up for her that He might sanctify her, 
having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Men, we haven't begun to love our wives like Christ loved the church until we love our wives for the reason Christ loved the church, which was to see her grow spiritually. And I find that convicting because as a minister, the, 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 the old proverb, a cobbler's kids are poorly shod, um, has been too often too true in my life. You know, my marriage, too often, you know, I've viewed Catherine as my partner in ministry to help the children love Jesus, help get food on the table, to help, you know, keep the house in order and all those things, you know, my help meet and all those things at all. But too often, I have neglected her spiritual well-being. I've been taking care of the church and not praying with her, not reading with her with the regularity with which a husband should read and pray with his wife. And if I can make that mistake as a minister of the gospel, I dare say some of you are making that mistake too. Not viewing her soul and her her spiritual welfare as your primary responsibility. Not being concerned, how is she doing? In her soul, is she growing? Is she thriving? Is she shrinking? Is she becoming a raisin or a grape? In her soul. Sorry. Um, that wasn't in the notes, but you, you take the metaphor, right? Um, for they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. Do you love your wife with the interests of Christ? Are you concerned for her? And so what you have to admit, your wife gets the flu, and you think, my life's so hard. I've got to do all my work out in the, in the world, and then I come home. I've got to help and do far more than I normally would do, right? And that's just so selfish. Genuine concern for others is a rare thing, horizontally. And it's because we don't look enough vertically at Jesus. We need to see Him and look at Him and look at Him and look at Him until our self, that lizard on our back, from Lewis's great divorce, is throttled and killed, not by an angel, but by looking at Christ. And we realize, if my, my God will die serving me, how can I live serving myself? I must spend my life serving Him and others made in His image. And then lastly, there is the eternal perspective, horizontal perspective, concern for others, vertical perspective, concern for Christ and His, His, His concerns, His interests in the lives of other people, and then the, the, the eternal concerns of laying our life down. And that's Epaphroditus, this pastor probably in the church of Philippi, who um, Paul is so impressed by this man's devotion. He he nearly died for the work of Christ, Paul says, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service, in your financial, physical gift to me, maybe a new cloak, maybe some books, maybe some food, right, some money. That was our service. And Epaphroditus risked his life fulfilling what was lacking in that. What was lacking in that? 
was a pair of legs to bring the gift from Philippi to Rome, hundreds of miles, walking. And Epaphroditus is walking. He gets sick, and he just keeps walking. He's almost dying. He keeps walking till he gets to Rome. When he gets to Rome, he's half past dead. And Paul says it, it's, it, it almost reminds him in the context of Christ, obedient to the point of death. Well, Epaphroditus is like Christ, he's saying. He's sacrificing. It's what it means, isn't it, to carry the cross. an instrument of death. And carrying the cross, sacrificing, doesn't feel very nice. Sacrifice feels like, well, a sacrifice. It's killing me, you think, carrying this cross. It's killing my love affair with my favorite sins. Saying no to them feels more like death than life. But carrying the cross calls for that kind of sacrifice. It's killing me whenever there's this person in my life, and they hate me for no good reason. They just hate me, and they're always stabbing at me, always jabbing, sticking the knife in just a little bit. Painful. And you you say, oh, I want to get them back. I have just a way to get them back, too, that they will just be… They'll be bubbling like a, a drop of water on a hot saucepan. When I, when I get my own way back, I will there'll not be enough left of them to bury them in a matchbox when I'm finished with them. And then you say, no, I'm going, to, I'm going to deny myself the right to do that. I'm going to love them. I'm going to pray for them. And it feels like death. And, and frankly, some of, your self, some of your selflessness amazes me. I was calling joy this week, and the same is true of Brian and Carmen and um, Mike and Betty Tate and Joel and Jessica. I called them and asked them and, and talked to how they're doing. And at the end of the phone conversation, they're always asking about me or other people. How can we pray for so-and-so in the church? Or how can we pray for you? And it, it amazes me how selfless they are. Whereas I, I can think in, in, in my ministries over the last 20 years, countless Christians who have far less to contend with in life, whose trials are the physical equivalent of an ingrown toenail, not quite, but in comparison to cancer, that's what they're struggling with. And all they ever talk about is me, 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 me. And they walk into the, into the fellowship hall, and it's like written on their forehead, your duty is to carry my burdens. And everybody runs. And they complain. (laughs) Nobody wants to be my friend. I'm thinking, well, I wonder why. All you ever talk about is yourself and your burdens and your difficulties. And every single person in this church has got pain in their lives and burdens in their souls. They may look beautiful to you. They may look wealthy to you. But I promise you, it doesn't take too many, peel away too many layers of the onion of their lives. And there's deep pain, disappointment, and burdens. And if only you'd get out of yourself and ask, how are you doing, so-and-so? How are you doing? How are you really doing? You'd find the burden begin to lift. 
as you get out of yourself and into the lives of other people. But sacrifice, true sacrifice, is something I'm not very good at. You get up in the morning, you open the dishwasher, and it's full, and you think, mm-hmm. I'll close that again. Nobody will know I, I saw it was full. <laughs> or you open it, and you empty it, and you think, oh. you know, wife, get up and praise me for emptying the dishwasher. I am worthy of praise. We're just such selfish creatures. Hast thou no scar, no hidden scar on foot or side or hand? I hear thee sung as mighty in the land. I hear them hail thy bright ascendant star. Hast thou no scar? Hast thou no wound? Yet I was wounded by the archers spent, leaned me against a tree to die and rent, by a ravening beast that compassed me, I swooned. Hast thou no wound? No wound? No scar? Yet as the master shall the servant be, and pierced are the feet that follow me. But thine are whole. Can he have followed far who has no wound nor scar? And here is Epaphroditus laying his life down, bringing food and money and maybe a new coat to Paul for the work of Christ. And that's, that's the example. It's, it's a beautiful thing in Scripture, recorded. And so, ladies, as you work at home hard and behind the scenes, maybe you've got a career outside the home and you come back and do more than your fair share or all the housework and all the cooking and cleaning, maybe you're homeschooling children and it's, 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 a, it's you think nobody knows how hard I work. My husband certainly doesn't know how hard I work. Jesus says, I have an eye for people who serve and people who sacrifice and people who give themselves serving others. And I know you could have had a career in the world, but you sacrificed it to raise the souls of these children, never dying souls, and you gave yourself to, to raise them. And I see the sacrifice. It's beautiful. Or husbands who, who maybe you deny yourself as big a career as you could have had because you're determined not to neglect your family. Your primary focus is the home, just like your wife. You're just out in the world maybe providing, working to bring home the paycheck, but, but you're careful with the work-life balance because your family's health is in the balance. And these sacrifices are beautiful in God's sight because they're a little picture of Jesus and Paul and Epaphroditus and Timothy who laid their lives down and poured their lives out as a living sacrifice upon the faith of others.
It's the horizontal, the vertical, and the eternal perspective of selflessness. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep, a momentary life in time, to gain what he cannot lose, eternal life forever in Christ. And I can promise you this, when we stand before Jesus and really see Him, then, as the angels see Him now, there's not one of us in this room will not wish we'd given Him more. And the chance to live a life of faith will be gone. The chance to sacrifice on earth, to suffer on earth, hardship as good soldiers of Christ, it'll be gone. We won't be able to get that back again. And we'll look back and think, oh, I wish I'd given Him more. Be more concerned with Him, more concerned with others, and less concerned with me. Let us resolve, my brothers and sisters, to live now as we shall wish we had lived when we see Him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank You for Your Word, O God. We thank You for its power to minister to us. Lord Jesus, help us to serve others simply and purely for the glory of serving You, that we wouldn't care about the praise we get from men, the reputation, the ministry, the adulation, but we'd only be concerned about Christ in Himself and Christ in others. And we offer these prayers in Jesus' name.